The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There's a story about one of the um, famous contemporary Zen teachers, Zen masters, uh, Suzuki Roshi from uh, San Francisco Zen Center. And he was asked to sum up all of Buddhism in one word. And he said, everything changes. (laughs) 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 Two words. He said one word in Japanese, two words in English. So everything changes. And um, for us as Dharma students, as meditators, practitioners, it's like this is the primary insight. You know, everything changes. Um, Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Anything, everything that can be experienced by this heart and mind uh, is impermanent. So in, in Pali, in the language of uh, you know, some of the early Buddhist teachings, this concept is expressed in the word anicca, um, an impermanent, um, the uncertain nature of things, um, uns- the, unpre- the unpredictable nature of things, the sort of uh, unstable nature of things. And um, there is a chant that um, I think is traditionally chanted in um, funerals in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And, and, it, and the verse says, all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To come to peace with this truth is the greatest happiness. All conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To come to peace with this truth, to bring this truth to peace, to be in harmony with this truth um, is the greatest happiness. So, you know, it's not only that to, what what always strikes me by this, it's like, it's not only if we come to peace with this truth, we'll we'll muddle along, we'll be okay, we'll, you know, we'll sort of make it. <laughs> it's like this is the key. This is the key to the greatest happiness that this practice can offer, that the Dharma can offer. So something about this, something about deeply seeing impermanence, deeply opening to this truth, is freeing. Has the has the possibility of being freeing. Um, and it can carry us into what is most sacred, maybe, what is most meaningful. One of, uh, uh, a phrase I, I recently heard that I like 
is describing change, describing permanence as like a river with no riverbanks. You know, this is what what our human realm is like. You know, there's no edges to the river. Um, and what I like about this image is, is that although impermanence completely surrounds us, it's completely what we are, um, it's not always so easy to see. You know, it's a little bit like a fish, like, you know, Dogen talks about a fish in the water doesn't have any idea of the water, maybe. And we're, we're in this ocean of impermanence, but um, somehow, you know, um, you know, it's not always so easy to see. Um, and, you know, reflecting on it, this kind of change, this kind of impermanence is um, in some ways wonderful. I mean, it makes, it makes growth possible, it makes learning, it makes development, it makes all of life possible. I mean, could there be life without change? Not as we know it, right? Um, so it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and then it has this side to it, or it has this implication um, that can be painful. You know, just this, just this idea of being separated from who we love, you know, from our loved ones. Um, so illness, loss, old age, separation, death, um, some of these may be very present for us and we may be practicing with them. And some of these may be sort of just, you know, if, even if they're not present for us right now, they're, they're there, they're lurking, you know. Um, there's a poet um, called Isa, the Japanese poet Kobayashi Isa, who uh, had a, he lived about 200, maybe 300 years ago, and um, is known as one of the four great modern haiku masters, Japanese haiku masters, and he was a Buddhist priest. And in his haiku, there is this sense of poignancy and beauty and feeling uh, about impermanence. Um, he, his mother, his mother died when he was three years old, and then he had somewhat of a difficult childhood and had some struggles with his stepmother over his father's estate and finally returned to his village when he was middle-aged. He was in his 40s, 50s, and he married. And um, this is one, one about his mother. Mother, I never knew. Every time I see the ocean. Every time. Mother, I never knew. Every time I see the ocean. Every time. And then, you might have, you might have heard this other one. It's probably his most famous p 
poem. Um, I think speaking about this, you know, this, this, uh, sometimes in, in Japanese, the world of impermanence is called the floating world. So, or the, the dewdrop world. So he says, this world of dew is a world of dew, and yet, and yet, and um, this poem was more meaningful to me when I knew that he, when I learned that he had written it after the death of his baby. You know, this world of dew is a world of dew, and yet, and yet. Brian mentioned at the beginning of the retreat that Dogen lost his own uh, mother and that inspired him to uh, become a monk and practice. Um, I'm always um, inspired or sort of um, amazed by the the story of the Buddha as well, who who is said to have, have lost his mother when he was young. And um, I think may, maybe this this speaks to me particularly because I lost a parent. I lost my father when I was young. And um, yeah, it's like that. I think parents offer ideally maybe some sense of stability, some s safety, stability, which for children is very important, you know, to have that rhythm, to have that um, security. And so when that's disrupted, um, it's, it's significant. Um, is this world safe? Is it reliable? What can I depend on? Um, And many of us maybe come to practice uh, that the, the, the sort of impulse to seek the Dharma or the impulse to practice is inspired by some kind of loss or some kind of disruption. It may be a relationship or a person or a career or, but some picture of who we um, thought we were or some picture of what we thought life was about, or what life promised, or what life um, means, uh, gets disrupted. And uh, so, in early Buddhism, there is a practice um, which is a kind of recollection of our mortality, a recollection of death, and it's sometimes called the elephant's footprint. And I really like this image because it's like, it's said that the elephant's footprint is large enough to contain the footprints of all the other animals. So if there's one practice or one thing to do, and I'm kind of a simple person, I like to have just one thing, just tell me, okay, one thing to do. <laughs> you know, this, this practice is suggested, the recollection of, 
of our own mortality, of the fleetingness of our own life. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe there's something in facing the truth of, of that, of this nature, um, that will help us to have a, a peaceful death, a beautiful death, um, when it's that time. But maybe even more meaningful than that, it's something about helping us to live, something to teach us how to live. And maybe there's a way that until we understand um, death, um, we, we, don't, we don't fully understand life. We don't under fully understand um, how to live. So, I, I offer this, you know, as, as something with, um, I hope, a lot of um, care and a lot of tenderness. And um, it's, it's a difficult, you know, it can be a difficult topic, um, especially in our culture where there is, um, you know, I mean, maybe there's there's a little bit or a lot of a sort of denial of death or a sort of wanting to avert our 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 eyes from it um i i think the main reason or i'll just speak for myself the the difficulty in in this topic or even being with being around death or being with someone even a loved one who is in the in the dying process is often that it's a mirror of our own mortality. So, um, you know, uh, there have been a few occasions where I've been at bedside with friends and um, noticing the difficulty in it and and working through that for myself. Uh, was very, very meaningful for me. And th there was a whole part of the process that I didn't really understand. I didn't know what was happening. I, I remember um, when a friend who was quite ill, uh, I happened to see, he would usually wear long, sh long sleeve shirts. And his, his face was unchanged and actually maybe in some way more beautiful as he was getting sicker. So there was a way that you could see him, that I could see him, and still be somewhere, you know, in denial that he was dying. And then one day, you know, uh, maybe a month or two before he, he passed, he, he was wearing a cut-off t-shirt. And I saw, I, I saw a skeleton basically, and I saw this discoloration and I saw an arm that didn't look like my friend's arm should look <laughs> to me. <laughs> and it was like my immediate reaction was that, you know, that's not, I should, you know, we shouldn't show that. I can't see that. Or why is he wearing that kind of shirt? You know, and there was this, I was like, what am I saying? What am I thinking? And it was like somehow I couldn't I couldn't deny it anymore. There was something that w it was 
it was it had gotten it had, the truth had sort of found its way in um so so you know it I understand the the difficulty with it and whether in the culture i mean another another example that comes to mind is visiting a friend whose very young son was in the hospital was in Sanford hospital and quite sick and on you know machines and you know i I didn't really think much of going of course i as soon as I heard i I went and um at that time I had uh, my first daughter, who was about the almost exact same age as my friend's boy, and I was okay, and I went in, and uh, but then when I saw this child, this beautiful child, you know, in this, I just, I, <laughs> I got a little woozy, and I said to my friend, I think I should sit down, and you know, it, and it was okay, and. But it was this, um, you know, um, I was seeing my child. I was seeing her child. I was seeing my child. And it was, it, 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 it was, um, there was something so real in that moment. Um, and also something, you know, that, that I hadn't fully you know, um, faced, hadn't fully processed. So, so something about being very gentle with the difficulty of this, um, and, and, and sort of honoring this deep human wish for, for safety, for st um, stability. I think there are ways that we devise to sort of shield ourselves from the world of impermanence. Um, in the story of the Buddha, the Buddha had his palace, you know, and was protected. And his father um, had decided that the best way to protect his little boy was to never let him see anyone who is sick or never let him see anyone who is old, very old, and never let him see anyone who is dying or a dead, dead body. So he was, as a child, very protected. Um, and also, I, I never thought much of that story or that piece of the Buddha's life until I had children. And, <laughs> you know, um we want to protect our, our 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 kids and we want to somehow preserve uh that that sweet innocence of of childhood um and so anyway now i can see both sides um <laughs> um so so maybe one of the ways that we take refuge from from this sort of uh unstable the in instability is through well one way is maybe through our things through our stuff you know um 
maybe a little bit, but I think even closer than sort of material things, we, we often take refuge in our thoughts, in our, in our thinking, in our planning. There's something about thinking that because it's a mental object, it doesn't change or it might not change, you know? And so um, in a, it, as a corollary to that, we take refuge in the sense of self, you know, the sense of continuity over time. Um, a sense of me who is the subjective self uh, who's experiencing things. Um, and so, so anyway, there we, we, as maybe as humans, we have this uh, conditioning or this uh, um, desire to, to, to somehow turn away from uh, this. And the request of Dharma practice is rather than turning away, is turning towards it and being with it and seeing it and opening to it. Um, So we say traditionally one of the ways that we we open to impermanence or we deeply see into it is through meditation. It's one of the interesting, um, I don't know what it's called, interesting little tidbits that <laughs> the more still the mind is, the more we can perceive change. When When my mind is very busy my mind is is moving a lot. Um, you can probably relate to this when we're when we're busy, when we're um, agitated. The world seems fixed. Th- things seem fixed, especially problems. You know, especially other people. It's like when when my mind moves, everything else has this sort of um, rigidity. But the more still the mind is, the more still our mind is, the more we can see into the, the, this, the truth of this, into, in, into the nature of change. So um, impermanence is, the insight into impermanence is um, the link between mindfulness practice and letting go. You know, and the proposition is that through mindfulness, through moment to moment awareness, through moment-to-moment attention, um, we start to see that what seemed solid is actually um, always in flux, always moving, always changing. And there's nothing that, you know, it's like there aren't handles. There's nothing we can grab onto. And when the mind really sees that, something, maybe something can be released, so something can let go. Um, and as we begin to see the momentary nature of experience, um, this Dogen, this line from Dogen starts to become clear that nothing at all has unchanging self. Um, the, the essence of things that we just assume exists and we, ex- we assume exists over time and maybe changes over time the closer we look, we see there isn't an essence the way maybe we thought there was. 
um, seeing through the illusion of continuity. One of the examples I love, and this is from uh, Maizumi Roshi, who is a, of, uh, from a contemporary Zen teacher from LA, uh, who passed away about 15 years ago. If you take a stick of incense and light it in the dark and then make a circle, you know, you'll see a circle, right? Now, is that circle, uh, you know, is it real? Is it, is it, is, is there a continuous circle there? Or is it, is it a little bit of an illusion? Is it actually, um, discontinuous frames, you know, just the, just the way a movie is, or just the way an animation is, just it, discontinuous frames that through our perception are perceived as um, moving, perce perceived as continuous. Um, so we say things change, but the question is, is there a thing? Is there, is there a thing that actually changes? into another thing. Um, I was a baby. There was a baby Max. There was a little boy Max. There was a teenager Max <laughs> um, who had big hair and <laughs> lots of pimples. And <laughs> um, there's an adult Max. Is there a me who is know, the same through all these. Um, you know, there's, con there's some kind of continuity, like the little boy Max didn't grow up into being a giraffe or something. You know, so there's some continuity, but um, it's a little strange to say that that baby is me or that that teenager is me. So with this as a sort of prelude, here's what Dogen says about this. Firewood becomes ash, and it does not become firewood again. So this is how we usually see things. You know, um, the baby became the boy, became the adult. The acorn became the tree, the firewood. So firewood becomes ash, and it does not become firewood again. Yet, do not suppose that ash is future and firewood past. You should understand that firewood abides in the phenomenal expression of firewood, which fully includes past and future and is independent of past and future. Ash abides in the phenomenal expression of ash, which fully includes future and past. Um, I think here Dogen is expressing this idea of the momentary nature of things. You know, usually we see time from the point of view as a sort of river, like I talked about this river. There's a river of time, you know, I was in the past or there was a past, now I'm in the present, in the future, I'll be in the future. Time is something that's existing and we're born into time. You know, there's the sense we're born into time. 
and then when I die, I'll, I'll drop out of time. And so this, I think, is a usual way of seeing. And Dogen is coming at it from this other side, you know, this, you know, maybe we can say this is a awakened side or uh, realized side. He's saying that um, time doesn't exist. Time, time doesn't exist in the way we think it does. And maybe time, our notion of time, depends on a notion of self. You know, it depends on some kind of self that is existing over time and changing. And so if, it if nothing at all has unchanging self, and there's just moment and moment and moment and moment and moment, the firewood is not the, the past tense of the ash. The ash is not the future of the firewood. The firewood is just the firewood. The firewood exists in its own position as firewood in, in this moment. And the ash exists as ash in this moment. Um, so for Dogen, each moment is totally absolute. And each moment includes the past and the future. Um, the only way, the only connection, here's how I understand this, the only connection we have to the past is through this moment. You know, there's no past that exists outside of our thinking about the past, remembering it. Um, but those memories, those thoughts happen when, where? They happen now, they happen in this moment. In the same way as the future, the future exists only in my thoughts about the future, my projections into the future, my hope of the future. But when, when, when do those hopes happen? When do those ideas, when do those plans happen? They happen now, they happen right now in this moment. So past and future are right here in this moment and where they can only be here. Um, and this moment is conditioned by the past and conditions the future. So that's another way that past and future are here. You know, this moment with all of us here at IRC was conditioned by 40 different people at some point deciding to come here. And so um, this moment holds that as well. And whatever we do from here, whatever we take from here, this moment holds that. So Dogen says, you should understand the firewood abides as firewood and fully includes past and future and is also independent of past and future. Um, this moment is the, is the only reality, you know, and this is this kind of radical way of, um, of seeing time is that the present moment is the only reality, but the present moment doesn't have time. The present moment is empty of time. 
um, it's it's just this. It's just this. Um, so, this being so, it is an established way in the Buddha Dharma to deny that birth turns into death. In the same way firewood doesn't become ash, in the same way the little boy or little girl um, doesn't turn into the adult. Um, birth doesn't turn into death. Accordingly, birth is understood as no birth. Um, it's unshakable teaching in the Buddha's discord that death does not turn into birth. Death is understood as no death. Birth is an expression, complete this moment. Death is an expression, complete this moment. It's like, you know, um, like Brian was saying this morning in the instructions on emotions. It's sometimes very helpful to name an emotion. Okay, anger, fear, joy. Um, but there's also a way that naming something sometimes solidifies it or sometimes gives it a reality that it doesn't actually have. And so if we look closely and we see that anger is just an idea, um, birth is just an idea, it's just this moment, just this moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. I think this is what this means, no birth, no death. Um, they are like winter and spring. You do not call winter the beginning of spring, nor summer the end of spring. Um, this is a good example of the seasons, isn't it? Because like when you're in a season, you know, we, we just had a really, I mean, it's a little strange here because we don't have distinct seasons the way, the way we do in uh, the East Coast, or I was in Japan. Um, my wife is from Japan. And we were in Japan this summer. And in Japan, the seasons are so distinct. It's like winter is really winter. It's snowy. It's cold. You do lots of winter things. And then, you know, it's like clockwork. It's like spring comes. Everybody knows what to do. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you change your wardrobe. You do this. It's like you just mark it on the calendar. And the great thing about spring in Japan is the cherry blossoms. And I think cherry blossoms are a wonderful illustration of Dogen's, this idea of um, the momentariness of, of time or the momentariness of, um, of, of existence. Because cherry blossoms are, for you probably know this, but they, they only bloom for, I think, a week. So one week every year, it might be two weeks. So, and this is a really big deal in Japan. You know, like on the news, they do a cherry blossom forecast. You know, it's opening in this part of Japan. It's, it's uh, you know, April 10th, and it's gonna come to Tokyo April 15th. And, you know, the joy, I've never seen this kind of, um, you know, you, s you know, in a way, there's there's like J Asian culture and Japanese culture. There's not a lot of public expression of emotion. 
You know, it's not like Italy where people are moving with their hands. And but in in Japan, you see men in suits. You know, businessmen, salarymen, weeping. You know, looking at the at the cherry blossoms in the park. And they might have had a little bit to drink, but <laughs> <laughs> they're still feeling the poignancy of impermanence. And that's the idea. The cherry blossoms perfectly express the, the beauty, the poignancy of this fle- fleeting, fleetingness of life. Um, they're beautiful not despite their, their um, fleetingness, but, but because of it. It's like we know they're only going to be up, only going to be open for a few days. So you just want to savor every every um you know every bit of it and then there's all these different stages that they some people love when they're fully open and my favorite time is actually when they've sort of they're dying and the spring winds come and blow through the trees and there's the sky the air is filled with these blossoms these petals and then they fall into the canals and the canals are just pink, just red and pink. And these people just line up and looking, looking at the trees and looking in the canals. And um, so something, when, when we appreciate the momentariness of existence, as Dogen is saying, it brings us alive and it brings life alive in a certain way, a certain kind of appreciation of, of sacredness that this moment is all we have. Um, and I think about this and as having implications for how we live, maybe, and also relationships with other people. If we see someone who we know well, or who we think we know well, um, if we're able to see them fresh, if we're able to see them in this moment, as a new arising, as someone who, you know, is abiding in, as Dogen says, in this expression right now, um, we're freeing them. We're freeing them from all the stories we have about them, all the ideas we have about them. You know, the classic example is with my mother, your father, your partner. Um, It's so easy to see someone through their history or through our ideas about them or through some other things we know. And it's such a gift to see someone fresh, to see them as being this new person, this new arising. And it, it allows someone to change. You know, it allows someone to, it allows an acknowledgement of someone's, of how they've changed. So it, you know, it, I think it has this great um, implication for relationships, for our life. I mean, the other thing that I think about is the the flip side, which is that um, you know, if you're familiar with young children, or you, you've have had young children, or have, or know about young children, there's a certain beauty and certain kind of um, closeness that you can sometimes have with a young child. And I have friends who are parents whose who's whose kids are grown and they always tell me savor this you know savor these moments because um you know 
they'll tell me, you know, I love my kids and, and they're, old, they're in college or they're older, but you know, it's not the same. It's not the same as that, that closeness that, that you have when you're young. And th- this is why it's like that child doesn't exist anymore. You know, that was an expression in the moment. And now there's a new expression. So it's, um, I, I think this is, this is, this teaching is especially beautiful in dealing with other people and being in relationship. Um, so to see others with fresh eyes, they're not the person they were 20 minutes ago, let alone 20 years ago, you know, so. Um, I think the the sense of the the absolute value of each moment, the sacredness of each moment, which is a big theme in Zen, um, often comes uh, at at times of um, you know may- maybe it's especially clear or especially memorable, at least for me, in times of, um, you know, when someone is dying, when someone is born, these, these moments of life stand out. And I think a reason that they stand out is that we are f- fully present in a way that's open to truth. To be open to truth, to be aligned with truth, the truth of change, the truth of impermanence. Um, in an open-hearted way, it's like the sacredness of the moment is revealed. And maybe what Dogen is suggesting is each moment has this invitation. Um, Each moment has this potential. I came across this, so I just want to end by reading it. It's it's an account of the, the final moments of the musician Lou Reed. Um, his wife is Laurie Anderson, and um, they, uh, you know, he had been ill with cancer for a number of years, and and they're both uh, were Dharma practitioners. So I just thought it was such a such a beautiful expression. This is what she says about uh, their their final moments. I have never seen an expression as full of wonder as Luz as he died. His hands were doing the water flowing 21 form of Tai Chi. His eyes were wide open. I was holding in my arms the person I loved the most in the world and talking to him as he died. His heart stopped. He wasn't afraid. I had gotten to walk with him to the end of the world. Life, so beautiful, so painful, so dazzling, does not get better than that. And death, I believe that the purpose of death is the release of love. Maybe let's just sit for a minute.
all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To come to peace with this truth is the greatest happiness. Thank you very much.